Let us bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you on this very important day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We pray that what we do during this day would be honoring to you. We pray that our lives and sacrifice and, and our humbling before you would be pleasing. Father, we pray for those not here and that we're unable to be here today and, and uh, pray for those that are asking for special prayer. Father, we pray also that you would give us great insight into your word, that you would allow us to better understand this day and what it represents and symbolizes. And we ask all this in the name of your son, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is uh, certainly a blessing to see everybody here today. I think this probably is a few more than we had last year. Normally, a Day of Atonement is kind of a hard day for many people. Or My uh, message today, this is probably the longest title I've had. I could have probably shortened it maybe, but Yom Kippur, Forgiveness of Israel's Sins, Anciently and in the Future. So that is what we're going to be focusing on today, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now this is one of the most important and solemn feasts, days, we find within the Word. You know, in fact, the Jews consider this day the holiest day of the year, as I also believe we see in Scripture. Now this day is also special for the Jews for another reason. It marks the end of what they call the Days of Awe. The Days of Awe begins on the Feast of Trumpets and ends today, Yom Kippur. During these ten days, rabbinic tradition holds that Yahweh judges all of mankind. And based on their deeds, either rights or names in the book of life or the book of death. Now, even though this belief is purely rabbinic, there's nothing in Scripture validating this, this practice, it again shows how the importance Yom Kippur has for the Jews. This is a very important day. And again, as I've already said, I believe to us, the most sacred day of the year. Now, another point that makes this feast unique is the level of information we find within the Word. It's amazing. You know, we'll see as we uh, go through this message, there's an entire chapter dedicated to this one day. That's very unique. We don't see that with the other feast days. You know, maybe the only exception would be maybe Passover. We see a lot of information on Passover. But the other feast, you don't see an entire passage talking about tabernacles or, or uh, trumpets or uh, any, any of these other days. But we do for this day. Now, as many of you know, Leviticus 23 provides somewhat of a summary for all the feast days. I always like to begin there when talking about the feast days, and, and uh, we're going to do that today. So let's uh, jump there, and we can just simply read the slide. Leviticus 23 and uh, 27 through 32, this is a command we find within Scripture. It says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. You know, some people are confused, by the way, with when atonement is, because it does mention the ninth day, and to even, and to even. And, but here it says the tenth day. So atonement is on the tenth day. goes on to say, shall be a holy convocation unto you. And here's, here's why we're doing what we're, what we're doing today. It says, and you shall afflict your souls on this day, and offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before Yahweh Elohim. For whatsoever soul it be, that shall not be afflicted, notice that, not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whosoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, that same soul or person will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It is a statute forever <clears throat> throughout your generations, in all your dwellings, it shall be 
unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls. And here it is, in the ninth day of the month at even, from even unto even, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So as I understand that, it begins at the end of the ninth day and through then the tenth day, as we find there in the word. Now we see here that, again, Yom Kippur is on the tenth day of the seventh month, and is called the Day of Atonement. Now the word atonement here is an important word. It comes from the Hebrew kapor. Now kapor in the Hebrew, based on Strong's, means expiation, which means to make amends or to cover sin. So that is what this day symbolized in the Old Testament. It was a day to cover sin. And as we'll see, it was a day to cover Israel's sin through the removal of the scapegoat or the azazel. We'll read a lot about that as we go through this message. Now we also see here that this day is a holy convocation. You know, some people make the claim that only the pilgrimage feasts are holy convocations. You know, if you know your Bible, you're going to know that all the feast days are holy convocations. And that one is true, and that's true here. This is a holy convocation. Now what does that mean? It comes from the Hebrew Kodesh Mikra. And it literally means a sacred gathering or assembly. So we are told to come together to worship Yahweh, to fellowship during this day. Now, we also see here that we're to do something very specific. It says that we're to afflict our souls on this day. Now, as we know, no other day requires this kind of affliction, this oppression. As we'll see, the word afflict means to fast, going without food and drink. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to over the years, and you'll explain the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and they'll look at you, how in the world can you do that? But, you know, it's not that hard. You know, I've been doing it for 42 years now, so I've become fairly uh, efficient at it. I don't really, It doesn't affect me a whole lot, and uh, I'm not willing to go a second or third day, though, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with this Day of Atonement. But it is still an affliction. Now, we're going to delve into this, further into this message, what that means and why it is a Fast. Now, we also see something here, and that is that Scripture says we're to do absolutely no work on this day. Now, I emphasize this because I think Scripture does that. This is a very strict day. You know, sometimes I um, will make the comparison with Passover being the most solemn day. But I think atonement is the most strict day. Does that make sense? One is solemn, one is strict. And this is the most strict, the strictest day of the year. And for that reason, Yahweh says here that anybody who does any work on this day, that he will be destroyed, that he will be cut off. You see, there's a high penalty for those who would break this day by working on this day. In verse 32, it says that Yom Kippur is a Sabbath of rest. Now, the word Sabbath here is, is, is unique. It actually derives from the same Hebrew word, that we find for the weekly Sabbath. It's the only exception. All the other feast days were uh, derived from the uh, word Shabbaton or Shabbaton. It's a different word. But this is different because Scripture shows this is a Shabbat. This is a weekly Sabbath in regards to how it defines it, but even more strict, I believe. Now, Yahweh warns here that if, again, anybody does any work on this day, if anybody does not afflict themselves on this day, that they're cut off. So we, again, see the gravity of this day. It is a very important time based on Yahweh's calendar. You know, this is how serious it is. 
to observe the Day of Atonement, to observe Yom Kippur as we find from the word. Now I mentioned the word afflict, that it means to fast, that is to go without food and drink. Now in this case from sunset to sunset. How do we know this? How do we know that this word to afflict means to fast? How do we know this? Well, number one, we see it in part by the Hebrew, and we'll, we'll look at that. And number two, we see other examples of this. Matter of fact, we have a surefire way of knowing in Acts, and we'll see that at the end. Now, the word afflict is from the Hebrew anah. Anah, that's where the Hebrew comes from, where the word afflict comes from. And Strong's defines this word as of looking down, browbeating. So that's what the word afflict means, to browbeat somebody, to look down upon, to humble somebody. The vines... Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words defines it as to, quote, afflict, to oppress, or to humble. So now it conveys the thought of causing affliction, causing oppression, hardship, humility. You know, considering that, well, I'd say all of us, certainly most of us, have gone now without food and drink for about 18 hours, I believe, at this point. You know, we're probably feeling a bit afflicted, feeling a bit oppressed, and that we should. Because that's what scripture says. You know, if we're not afflicted in some way, if we're not feeling the hardship in some way, or we're not following what Yahweh says within his word, everybody feels afflicted at some level. Now, beyond this, we also see evidence for this from the word. I want to look at Psalms. Psalms 35, verse 13. It says there, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. Notice that I humbled my soul with fasting, it says, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. Now, the word humbled here is from the Hebrew anah. Humbled, anah. So we find here that there's a connection between humbling and what? Fasting. So here's a connection between, again, anah and fasting. Now, we see another example of this in Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. A very unlikely story, by the way, if you know anything about Nineveh. Jonah 3, 5 through 7 says, And so the people of Nineveh believed Elohim and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. So notice that even the king did this. Nobody was exempt. Even the king dressed in sackcloth and humbled himself, recognizing the judgment that was upon Nineveh. And it says, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. Now, you all know this story, the story of Jonah. Jonah the prophet here was commanded by Yahweh to go to Nineveh to prophesy against her sins. And we know... That, that Jonah was reluctant. Why? Why was he reluctant? Or let me give you a little bit of background as to this uh, Nineveh. Or the Assyrian Empire, which was Nineveh, the, the capital there, was one of the most ruthless and barbaric nations in the ancient world. They would take people away with nose in the rings. They were barbaric in many ways. And this was, again, the reason why Jonah was reluctant to, to prophesy against Nineveh. Now, in a shocking turn of events, we find here that the king of Nineveh repented. He humbled himself. And as we know from the story, this was quite a shock to Jonah. 
he wasn't real happy with the outcome here. He assumed that they would ignore the call, but as we know from the story, they did not. So how did they show their humility? How did they, they show their repentance to Yahweh? It says here that they fasted. They fasted. Now, if we see here, not only the people, but also the animals, the livestock, it says. And we see here that they abstain from both food and drink. So we see here a biblical fast. You know, some people say, or is it a fast if I simply go without food? Well, I guess you can do that if you want to afflict yourself. Yahweh knows our hearts. But it's not a biblical fast in, the, in that sense. A biblical fast is a fast when we abstain from bo- fo- both food and drink. So to show the repentance, we find here that the people of Nineveh humbled themselves through fasting, from abstaining from both food and drink. Now we see another example of fasting in Luke, defining fasting. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. It says, There and they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees? But thine, Yahshua's disciples, ate and drank. You know, in this passage, Yahshua is asked why his disciples would not follow in the same traditions as John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. But what I want you to notice here is how they, though, define fasting. How does Scripture here define fasting? It says that Yahshua's disciples ate and drank, showing that a true fast is when we do not eat and drink. So that's why this passage is important, because it shows a true fast. And a true fast, again, is when we afflict our souls through abstaining from both food and drink, as we see here. Now, there's one scripture that is undeniably uh, shows we are to fast, and that's in Acts. Acts 27, verse 9. This is real important scripture for this, because there are some people out there who say that, well, we're not to fast, to humble ourselves or to afflict ourselves. That doesn't mean that we're to fast. And here we see one passage showing showing, uh, conclusively that we, we are to fast. This is Acts 27, verse 9. It goes on to say there, Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because a fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. Now we find here that on one of Paul's travels that a fast occurred. Now, what is this referring to a fast? Or as you see on the slide here, the word fast comes from the Greek word nestia. Nestia. And it means abstinence from lack of food or voluntary religious. Specifically, it says the fast of the day of atonement. So we see a connection here between fasting and the day of atonement. So there's no doubt that as believers we should be fasting on Yom Kippur, fasting on the day of Kippur. Again, there's people out there who will say, no, we're not to fast. We're to afflict our souls in other ways. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that we're to afflict our souls, and it says that we're to do so through fasting. And this is a great example because there's no getting around what it says here. This is a fast, and we see a connection with the day of atonement. I want to transition now and talk about how Israel observed this day in the Old Testament, what they did, because, again, it's unique from all the other feast days before it. We don't see any other, uh, of the other feast days, maybe again with the exception of Passover, which really isn't a feast, going into this length, this information. So let's do that. Leviticus 16 is a passage. Leviticus 16, and again, this is dedicated entirely to this day. And I'm going to read this from Scripture, so you'll have to um, either listen or just follow along with Scripture. So Leviticus 16, and uh, we're going to read oh, a big part of the passage here. 
And we're going to be, begin with verse 1. So it says there, Leviticus 16, verse 1, And Yahweh spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, and they offered before Yahweh and died. You know, we remember that, by the way, right? Nadab and Abihu, they offered a strange fire for Yahweh, said, don't do this. They did it anyway. And Yahweh consumed them because of their rebellion. You know, when Yahweh says to do something, we're to do it, we're to follow it, especially as it pertains to his worship. And that's such an important point for us as believers to understand. We are not to meddle with his worship. We are not to compromise his worship as the sons of Aaron did, because, again, we see here this first verse that they lost their lives. Yahweh literally consumed them, Scripture says. Verse 2, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place where in the veil that there was the, the holy of holies before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. But I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with the young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh. And he shall be girded with a linen girdle and with a linen miter, Shall he be attired? These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in the water and so put them on. Now, we find here that it says Yahweh appeared where? Yahweh appeared on the mercy seat in a cloud. Now, for those who may not know the mercy seat, this was a lid, or this was a cover to the Ark of the Covenant. It comes from the heap of Kaporth, Kaporth. So we find here that the mercy seat, which is where Yahweh's glory rested, is connected with a thought of mercy or compassion. You know, it's amazing. Yahweh is certainly a mighty one of mercy. One of the, one of the uh, themes, I, I just, it inspires me is to see the compassion and the mercy that we find, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old. Some people have this crazy idea that Yahweh in the Old Testament was this vicious, mighty one, where nothing could be further from the truth. The patience that he had with Israel of old is just astounding. So here we see the mercy seat, and again, it's connected with this concept of compassion. We also see here that on this day, the high priest would put on his holy linens. Holy linens. This symbolized the purity, the sanctity of this day. You see, he couldn't do this any other day. This was a special time. It needed, required special clothing. You know, as believers today, we're to walk in this same purity, knowing knowing especially what we represent. And what do we represent? Our scripture says that we represent Yahweh's temple. And as such, we're to really take that serious. We're to understand the gravity and the responsibility of that fact that we represent the temple. Because when you look at how stringent Yahweh was with his temple in the Old Testament, we need to understand the gravity and the obligations we have as believers today. Now, we also see that the high priest had to wash himself. Again, this was an act of cleansing, purity. You know, in some ways, you know, I see a connection between this and baptism, this concept of washing. I think that's in part where this concept of baptism likely arose from the Old Testament. Well, let's continue now with verse 5. Verse 5 and 6, we're going to read. And it says, And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and to make atonement for himself and for his house. So why do you suppose Aaron here had to offer a bullock for himself 
and for his family. What was the reason? Well, you know, different animals had different values within the sacrificial system. Not everything was equal. A turtle dove had much less value than a bullock. Because of Aaron's position as high priest, he and his family required a greater sacrifice, a greater offering based on the word. You know, in some ways, this reminds me of what we see in James as it pertains to ministers. You know, James there in chapter 3 says that we're not to have many masters or ministers over us. Why? Because it says there that they're going to receive the heavier condemnation. You see, when much is given, much is expected. And Yahweh expects a lot from those who minister in the word. And this should be a sobering thought for everybody who ministers in the word. The fact that there is a heavier condemnation for those who stand behind this pulpit and for those who preach the truth. Well, let's continue. I want to read verse 7 through 10. It says there in verse 7, And he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which Yahweh's lot fell and offer him as a sin offering. So we see here two goats. But verse 10 says, But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement with him. So you see, this live goat, it says, was a goat that made atonement, to make atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So we see here two goats were given to Aaron. One was Yahweh's goat, and this goat would be used for the sin offering. The other goat was the live goat, the scapegoat, as we find within Scripture. So how were the goats chosen? Well, we know that the goats were chosen by Lot. We actually have a um, reference note on this in the Restoration of Study, but I would like to read this. This is actually in part from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. But here's how it defines the casting of lots. And this is, um, this is somewhat conjecture. Nobody really knows exactly, but it's still a good reference. This says the uh, process of casting lots consisted of an actual process. Jewish writers have thus described the priest placing one of, uh, on one of the goats on his right hand and the other on his left took a station by the altar and cast into an urn two pieces of gold exactly somewhere inscribed in one with the words for Yahweh and the other for Azazel or a scapegoat. That's what the Hebrew word is, Azazel or scapegoat or the live goat. It says, after having well shaken them together, he put both his hands into the box and took up a lot in each that in his right hand he put on the right head of the goat which stood on his right, and that in his left he dropped on the other. In this manner, the fate of each was decided. And again, that reference uh, is also from the Jameson, Foster, Brown commentary. So we see here possibly how they would select the goats for the sin offering and also for the scapegoat or the live goat. So what were the differences between these goats? Or Yahweh's goat, Yahweh's goat was to be used for a sin offering, sin offering for the people. And the scapegoat was a vessel, I say vessel, I can't think of a better word to really describe that, a vessel for Israel's sins. 
Because again, remember that it was a scapegoat. It was the Azazel that would take the sins of the Israelites. So as we see here, the scapegoat was to be presented before Yahweh alive. And the sins of Israel were symbolically placed upon this goat. After this, we see in Scripture that a fit man would take the goat out of the camp and into the wilderness. Now, one of the things I always want to emphasize with this goat is the fact that this goat was never sacrificed. The Azazel was never sacrificed. And for me, that's an important clue. It was never sacrificed, and it was not a sin offering. The other goat was a sin offering. Yahweh's goat was a sin offering. I want to read another note from the Restoration of Study Bible. It speaks to this scapegoat. It says, scapegoat called Azazel in the Hebrew, meaning the goat of departure. This goat likely represented Satan, who is led away into the wilderness, and we'll, we'll look at that later. Upon this goat, Aaron was to lay both his hands and confess over it all the sins and transgressions of Israel. In effect, transferring all sins back, to, back on, onto the adversary, the originator of sin. Then a fit man, likely symbolic of Yahshua, led the goat away into oblivion. And there he would die, as in Romans 16, verse 20, bruise equals crush, reference to Satan the devil, and also a few other scriptures there. Well, let's now, um, so that's the scapegoat, sort of explains what it is. And uh, again, as we see here, just to sort of uh, summarize, the scapegoat was not Yahweh's goat. The scapegoat was not a sin offering. The scapegoat was a live goat. The scapegoat is what atoned for the sins of Israel. And the scapegoat would be removed by a fit man, this says a strong man, into the wilderness where it would die, where it would stay and not return. Well, let's continue on. I want to read verse uh, 11 through 28. So this is a fairly lengthy uh, reading. That's one reason I don't have it on the slide here. So uh, Leviticus 16, 11 through 28. It says, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So again, we see here that he begins by offering this bullock because a bullock had more value, and again, because he was a high priest, it required that level of sacrifice. Verse 12, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before Yahweh, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil, the holy of holy. You see, he had to conceal. He had to conceal the presence there. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before Yahweh, that the cloud of the incense may cover their mercy seed that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Now just real quickly, what does seven times represent, symbolize? Where seven times the number seven generally represents perfection. Perfection or completeness. So we hear that this was a complete or this was a perfect process that Yahweh here commanded. In verse 15, then he shall, shall he kill the goat of the sin offering. So we, so, so we find here that prior to killing the goat for the sin, the, the, the sin offering, which was for the people, we see that he first had to make atonement for himself. Did he catch that? He could not offer the goat for the sin offering for the people unless until he himself was atoned for. But after that, as we see here, he's offering this goat for the sin offering. He says, that is for the people. And bring his blood within the veil and do with the blood as he did with the 
blood of the bull, I can sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and, uh, and before the mercy seat. So we see here that this is a second time, by the way, that they would, he would have entered into the Holy of Holies. First is with the blood from the bullock and second from the blood of this goat. In verse 16, it shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So we see the reason this had to be done was to remove the transgressions of the Israelites. Once a year, they had to purge and clean and make amends of all this sin, of all this transgression. Verse 17, and no, and there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he comes out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. There are some traditions, as a side note, that say that the Israelites would later tie a rope around the high priest so that if something happened in there, they could pull him out. I don't know if that's true or not, but there is a tradition that says that. Verse 18, and he shall go out unto the altar that is before Yahweh, and make an atonement for it. And shall take the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar around about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar... You see, all of this had to be done before they dealt with the scapegoat, the Azazel. They had to be cleansed. Everything had to be cleansed. The people had to be cleansed. The high priest had to be cleansed. The, the, the articles had to be cleansed. And after all of this, then we find now the scapegoat. Verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, Live goat. Again, this goat was not sacrificed. Live goat. And confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the head of a fit man into the wilderness. So you see, again, it was his scapegoat. It was the Azazel that took upon the sins of Israel and then was let out and removed. And by that symbolic act, the sins of Israel were removed from the camp. Verse 22, And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited. It's a desolation. It's a wilderness. Matter of fact, it says here, He shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on the garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. Now, why did he have to do that? Why did this fit man or strong man, after he had let this goat out, he had to come back and eat a wash prior, prior to coming back into the camp? Well, you see, again, the scapegoat had the sins upon Israel. And because of that, it was unclean. You know, I think just in the same way when, now I'm not making the comparison exactly here, but I think there's a parallel between this and when Yahshua took our sins upon himself and he said, you know, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? 
you know, Yahweh could no longer look upon his son. And this man, he had become unclean because of the sins from this goat. Verse 27, and the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. So everything about these animals had to be consumed, these sin offerings. And he that burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in the water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. Again, the same reason, because the man who, who burned the animals, he too was now ceremonially unclean. And for that reason, he had to wash himself before coming back into the camp. So this is how Israel observed the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And I find it fascinating, again, that we have such incredible detail. We don't see this with the other feast days, but we see it again with Yom Kippur. There's something very special about this day. I want to sort of go through this list here, what exactly happened. And I did this last, and I want to share this again with you. So this is a chart that sort of steps through what occurred on the Day of Atonement. So I'm going to summarize what we heard. The uh, text is um, sometimes hard to understand, so this is a step-by-step process of what happened. So the high priest sacrifices a bullock for himself and for his family. Again, that was the first thing. High priest takes coals and incense and enters the Holy of Holies. Using his fingers, he sprinkles again the blood from the bullock seven times on the mercy seat eastward. I'm not sure what the symbolic value of the eastward is. There's lots of different ideas, but it was eastward, and it was seven times. High priest leaves the Holy of Holies and kills goat as a sin offering for the people. High priest pours out the remaining blood from the bullock and goat on the horns of the brazen altar. The high priest then leaves the Holy of Holies. Using his finger, he sprinkles the blood from the goat seven times on the mercy seat or goes into the Holy of Holies. And again, he does it eastward and seven times. So after this, you know what? I did that wrong. I thought it sounded a bit strange. So let me start over. So the high priest leaves the Holy of Holies, kills a goat as a sin offering. So we're there. After this, he takes a call's incense, and a second time, he then again enters the Holy of Holies. Using his finger, he again applies the blood seven times to the mercy seat eastward. The high priest then leaves the Holy of Holies. That is right. And this is, again, the second time. So, again, he goes in once with the blood of the bullock, and then he goes in again with the blood of from the goat. And after this, the high priest pours out the remaining blood from the bullock and the goat on the horns of the brazen altar. And after this, the live goat or escape goat or the azazel is brought to the high priest. When this occurs, the high priest lays his hands on the live goat, symbolically transferring the sins of Israel from the people onto the head of this goat. Scapegoat then is taken from the camp into the wilderness by a Quote, fit man, strong man. High priest then removes his linen garments, bathes, puts on normal priestly attire. The high priest offers burnt offerings from the people and himself. The fit man who took the goat into the wilderness bathes because he himself again was unclean. The remains of the bullock and goat used for the sun offerings are taken outside the camp and burned. And after this, the man who burned those offerings must wash before the he comes back into the camp. So that is a nice summary of what occurred on this day, quite involved. And, you know, it's important to realize 
that they had to do it just as we find within the word. You know, what do you think would have imagined if Moses would have, or Aaron would have deviated a little bit instead of maybe doing the bullock, he did the goat first, or I, I think the consequences would have been severe. You know, we've talked about the Azazel, the scapegoat, and we believe that the scapegoat or the Azazel, again, represents Satan, the devil. So I want to read a passage that I believe draws some uh, parallels to this, and this is uh, Revelation 20, 1 through 3. And here's what it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven. Now this is after Yahshua's come. This is, Yahshua is, is coming back to this earth. He's arrived, and now he's sending this angel down. It says, Having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is a devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more to the thousand years shall be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So we see here that Yahshua's, at Yahshua's second coming that Satan's going to be bound into this pit for a thousand years and no more deception, no more influence from Satan the devil. Now, how will this happen? Well, we see here the scripture says that an angel, an angel will take a, a great chain, and he will use his chain to bind Satan, and he will throw or cast Satan into this pit for the thousand years of the millennium. And when the thousand years expire, we find that he will be loosed for a short time. And as we know from scripture at this time, he will gather another army. He will deceive and they will come against the holy city, and they will be consumed. And that will be the end of Satan from that point on. Now, I believe that what we uh, see here are parallels between Satan the devil and the Azazel that we found in the Old Testament. Let me give you a few parallels that I see. So as the sin offering Israel was transferred to the scapegoat, so again, the sin, the iniquity, the transgressions was transferred to the scapegoat or the Azazel, the sins of mankind, I believe, will be transferred to Satan the devil, the originator of sin, when this happens. As a fit man, I think this is pretty clear, as a fit man took the scapegoat into the wilderness, a strong man, we find here that an angel will, will take a great chain and will bind Satan and throw him into a pit for the thousand years. And the last one here is a scapegoat was kept alive. Satan, as we know, will be kept alive for the duration of the millennium. For a moment, think about how important this one event is. Consider the gravity of what we find here. You know, we're talking about the removal of Satan the devil, the originator of sin, the one who rebelled against Yahweh, the one who has caused so much grief and chaos in this earth. He's going to be taken away and removed for 1,000 years, no more influence from Satan the devil. Now, what about Yahshua the Messiah? Where does he fit in? Where does he fit in? This is something I've really thought about over the years, and I'm going to present something a little bit different this year. Where does the Messiah fit in? Some believe, some believe that Yahshua is depicted here through his death. So, in other words, the Day of Atonement points back to Yahshua's death. Where I have an issue with that, I, I, I struggle with this. And number one, Yahshua died on Passover. We all know that. Yahshua died on Passover. He doesn't die twice. He died on Passover. Number two, 
This doesn't fit the um, chronological pattern we find with the other feast days. And uh, we'll see that in just a moment. I'm going to spend some time really focused on the chronological pattern and, and show this, this uh, to you so that we all understand it. So if Yahshua is not represented through his death on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, how is he represented? Because obviously Yahshua is to fit in somewhere. There's something. There's some role that he must have, and I believe that we find it within Scripture. Now, before I answer that, again, I want to look at the, uh, this, this pattern that we find. So, bear with me. So, we find this uh, prophetic fulfillment of the biblical feast. Here's a slide. It shows the prophetic importance of all the feast days. Now, think through this. Consider the pattern, the chronological pattern, the sequence we find here. So, Passover symbolizes what? This isn't in dispute. The Passover symbolizes Yahshua's death. So what does the Feast of Love of Bread symbolize? So this symbolizes his resurrection. Yahshua was resurrected at this time. Feast of Weeks, as we know from the New Testament, it symbolizes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The outpouring, the pouring out of the Ruach HaKodesh. Feast of Trumpets, we believe, and most do, it makes a lot of sense, that this symbolizes, foreshadows, Yahshua's second coming and also the first resurrection. Remember that when Yahshua comes, he's going to resurrect the saints. So those two events are tied. They're connected. Now I'm going to leave the Day of Atonement here with a question mark. We're going to come back to that. Feast of Tabernacles. Most believe, as we do here, that this is a reference. This is foreshadows the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom here on earth. And the last one here, the last great day, where this symbolizes the great white throne judgment. The final judgment, Scripture calls this a second death. There is no more death after this because we know that Hades, or the grave, is thrown into the lake of fire after this occurs at the end of the great white throne judgment. So these, this is what these days depict. This is what they foreshadow. Now, as you can see here, there is a pattern. There is a pattern. We find that the feast days are chronological, that there is a sequence to the days. They build upon one another. I want to go, go through these one more time, not the feast days, but now focus just on the symbolism, the fulfillment, what each one foreshadows or foreshadowed. So we're going to start with Passover and again go through the last great day. So what's the first one? We have Yahshua's death. Second one is Yahshua's resurrection. Third is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Fourth is the return of Yahshua the Messiah and the, re- the resurrection of the saints, the first resurrection. The next one is the millennial kingdom, and the one after that is a final judgment of mankind, where there is a pattern here. Again, it's a chronological pattern, a sequence of time that we find with all the feast days. And I believe that this is also true for the Day of Atonement. I didn't list the Day of Atonement here, but I believe that the Day of Atonement fits in, fits in right between trumpets and tabernacles. So atonement must represent something that occurs after Yahshua's return and before the formal establishment of the kingdom. So what would that be? What would that be? Or in the prophetic word, we find that when the Messiah returns, that he's going to gather the people of Israel together. And it says in multiple passages that he's going to forgive their sins. 
that he's going to forgive their transgressions, that he's going to forgive their iniquities. I believe that this is what atonement foreshadows and represents. It represents the time when Yahshua returns. He will gather the people of Israel together again, and he will forgive their transgressions. He will forgive their sins and their iniquities. So while it may not prophetically point to Yahshua's death, which again is depicted through the Passover, it does point to Yahweh's forgiveness through his son's sacrifice. So Yahshua's still there. His sacrifice is still there. But he doesn't go back to die. His, this, this is reference, referencing his sacrifice and the forgiveness that the people find through it. So here's a list. I'm going to redo this here, go through it one more time. So here's a list, as I see it, with the inclusion of the Day of Atonement. So Passover represents Yahshua's death. Unleavened bread represents his resurrection. Feast of Weeks or Pentecost would represent the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Trumpets represents Yahshua's second coming. And also with that, the first resurrection. Because again, remember, those things happen at the same time. They're not, they're not separated with time. As soon as Yahshua comes, he's going to resurrect the saints. Day of Atonement represents the forgiveness of Israel's sins in the millennium. And we're going to see examples of that. Tabernacles, the establishment of the kingdom, and the last great day, the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of mankind, also, again, known as the second death. Now, I want to review a few passages confirming this prophetic promise. And we see uh, three examples, three really good examples, two in Jeremiah and one in Ezekiel. So I want to begin with Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 and uh, 33 through 34 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my laws in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their Elohim and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man to know uh, man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh. For it says here, For they shall all know me, from the least of them even to the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. Now listen to what it says here. It says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now we know that Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, this is a reference to the new covenant. Verses 33 and 34 here, we find that Yahweh is making a promise to the Israelites, to the house of Israel. He says here, number one, that he's going to put his laws within their inward parts. In other words, at this time, his commandments will be part of them. It's going to be something they, they bring inside. We also see here that he will be their Elohim, and, and they, in turn, shall be his people. You know, this, this reminds me of the Day of Atonement. Because what's the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement is about making amends. It's about rebuilding that relationship so that Yahweh could remain their Elohim and they could remain his people. But it, you know, we, see, we see even more than this. We see more than that. You know, just as a side note, how do we know that this is a millennial passage? You know, some say, they say, well, this is a new covenant. This, this has uh, already occurred or already happened. So how do we know that this is something for the future, that this is prophetic? Well, here's how we know this. It says here that at this time, we're not going to have to tell our neighbor to know Yahweh. Because at this time, it says all will know him from the least unto the greatest. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I don't believe everybody, everybody's aware of Yahweh today. 
I believe that there's a lot of people ignorant of Yahweh today. This can't possibly be referring to today. It has to be referring to a future time, to the millennium. Now, in verse 34, we find that at this time, Yahweh will forgive Israel's iniquities, it says, and he will remember their sins no more. You know, for me, this promise speaks directly to the Day of Atonement, to Yom Kippur. The day when Yahweh made amends with Israel, the day that he removed the sins of Israel from the camp. Where on this day, Yahweh is going to remove the sins from an entire nation and bring them back to him. And again, this happens after Yahshua's coming. As Yahweh forgave Israel's sins in the Old Testament, we find that he will do the same on this day when Yahshua returns. And again, when this happens, it says that he will be their Elohim and they shall be his people. He is literally bringing them back to their own land. But he, first has, but he first must cleanse them of their sins, cleanse them of their past transgressions, and again, restore that relationship. And again, if that doesn't describe the Day of Atonement, I'm not sure what would. The Day of Atonement is, is all about this concept of restoring and purifying, and that's precisely what we find here. Now, we see a similar passage in Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, 6-8 says, Behold, I will bring in health and cure, and I will cure them and reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captivity of Judah, and listen, the captivity of Israel, to return. And I will build them as one as at the first, and I will cleanse them from their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Now, we know this is a prophetic promise within the word, but how do we know that? We see here that Yahweh is going to bring back the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel. This is an important point. This is, you know, sometimes there's a lot of truth in, in a detail, and that's true here. Because if it just simply said, he's going to bring back the people of Judah, or maybe we can say, or that has already happened although I don't believe it's happened fully. But it doesn't say that. It says here that he's going to restore, that he's going to bring back Judah and uh, Israel, the people of Israel that's been scattered. You know, remember, a history lesson here after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided. They were torn apart after Solomon's death during the reign of Rehoboam. The south included Judah and Benjamin, part of Levi, and then the ten northern tribes, included all the others. So again, while Yahweh has somewhat restored the kingdom of Judah, or the southern kingdom, he has not done so with the, with the northern. They are still out there, and they are waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled. So this is how we know that this is not a historical passage. This is how we know that this is not a present passage. This is how we know that it is a future prophetic passage. Speaking about the time when Yahshua will gather the Israelites, all of them, and restore them to their own land. Now, what else do we see here? As we saw in Jeremiah 31, we see here that at this time it says that Yahweh will pardon Israel's iniquities and sins. He will pardon Israel's iniquities and sins. And when this happens, he will be their Elohim, and they shall be his people. You know, I often view the millennium as a time of restoration or restoring what's been lost. 
Here we find Yahweh giving Israel an opportunity through the forgiveness of her sins and again bringing them back to himself, bringing them back to the land. And that's what's going to happen prophetically. Prophetically, when Yashbur comes, he's going to gather the, the, the Israelites, all of them, throughout the four corners of this earth and again bring them back. And when he brings them back, he's going to forgive them. He's going to, he's going to overlook He's going to remove their iniquity, as we find here. Again, for me, this prophetic promise points to the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. And it also fits with the chronological order, the sequence that we find. It fits perfectly. It's right between the return of Yahshua and the formal establishment of the kingdom. There's just a few things Yahshua's going to do immediately. Number one, he's going to, he's going to resurrect the saints, after the resurrection, he's going to gather the people of Israel together, the Israelites, and bring them back to their own land. And as we find here in Jeremiah, he's going to forgive their iniquities. He's going to forgive their trespasses. He's going to forgive their sin. And again, that's indicative of the Day of Atonement. Now, there's one more passage I want to share, Ezekiel 37, 23. Many of us are familiar with this. It says, Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places. You see, again, he's going to bring them back. Wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. Just as he did during the Day of Atonement, he's going to do it again. He's going to cleanse them. And again, I think Satan has a part in this. That Satan, he's going to take the, absorb those sins once more and be bound and Yahshua, through his sacrifice and through his forgiveness, then will offer this forgiveness of sin. Closes here with saying, so shall they be my people, and I will be their Elohim. You see, for them to be his people, they first must find remission of sin. Because at this point, as we read prophetically, they are defiled with idols and transgressions. They have not followed Yahweh's word. So as a result, we find here this forgiveness. So what do we see? Whereas we saw in Jeremiah 31 and also 33, this is a prophetic promise pointing to the millennium. Most have no question with that. I mean, most understand that Ezekiel 37 and on is prophetic. At this time, Yahweh, through his son, Yahshua, will restore the people of Israel back to their land. And when he does this, we find here that he will cleanse them of their transgressions and sins. Now, again, for me, this speaks directly to the Day of Atonement. It speaks to the time and the opportunity of cleansing and restoring that relationship. The day when Yahweh made an atonement through the forgiveness of Israel's sins. So while Yom Kippur, again, may not represent Yahshua's death, it does foreshadow the forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice. And when this happens, he will bring a people again back to him, and they will again call upon his name. This forgiveness, this promise, again, points to the millennium. It foreshadows a time when Yahweh will restore Israel and then remove their transgression. And again, as I've already said, this fits also chronologically with what we find with the other feast days. You know, the prophetic promises we find in Jeremiah and Ezekiel would fall, as I've already said, right between Yahshua's coming and the establishment of the kingdom. So I pray and hope that you know, this message has maybe helped you, helped you understand the Day of Atonement, the gravity of this day, 
and also the promise that awaits the children of Israel, the the people that are called by Yahweh's name. Someday, he's going to regather them, and someday he's going to show that forgiveness. As we find in the Old Testament, it will happen again prophetically. Whereas it is our custom, we would like to close this uh, high day with the ironic blessing. You know, as a priest would pronounce this blessing upon the people of Israel, and I, at this time, would like to now pronounce this blessing upon you. So if you would all stand. And as it has become my custom, we'll do it in Hebrew and, and then English. Yavah Rekeka Yahweh, Yavesh Mareka, Yair Yahweh Penevelaka, Vikuneka, Yaseh Yahweh Penevelaka, Veyasim Laka Shalom. Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Hallelujah.